August 15, 1971, Richard Nixon closed the gold window on the world and changed the monetary order. Let's talk about what the Federal Reserve knew, what they were thinking about leading up to this incredible moment when they were going to become the center of the monetary universe, when they no longer had to look at this gold, this piece of gold, and somehow square themselves with this lumpy rock. Ah, what did the Federal Reserve know? When did they know it? What did they think about? We're going to ask Jeff Snyder, who read the transcripts pre and post Nixon shock, and we're going to learn exactly what the Federal Reserve officials were thinking. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, good morning. How are you? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing it's always well. a good day when we talk gold, right? I mean, that's always yes. that's always fun. Yes. Uh, I should have something funny to say, but gold is <laughs> boring and insurance, and it's there to do nothing. So that would be counter the the spirit of gold for me to make some sort of funny remark or something. It's just there. It it's does solid. Nothing. It's dependable. You never think about it. That's the sound money. That's what it's supposed to be. It, it's it's the thing that you don't have to think about so that you can think about all the more productive things in your day. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of sound money is that because it's so sound, it's the last thing on your mind. Did I ever tell you about the study Gold Returns? No, I, ever... I don't think you have. Uh, it was originally in 2013 and then published in 2015, a couple of Harvard economists. And what they did is they did a, a survey of, I don't remember the numbers, but let's say 40 to 50 macroeconomic shocks, including wars across 19, 24 countries or so. And they looked at cash, bonds, uh, equity investments, and gold. And they wanted to see, well, how did these investments do during these shocks. And you know what they concluded? They concluded that gold was a poor hedge and a poor investment because you know what gold did during those shocks? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. But that was, and I was saying, that's the point. Yeah, they're missing the point there, right over their head, right? <laughs> Everything else, the bonds, the stocks, yeah. the cash, straight down. While gold had the same statistical return in crisis and out of crisis. And that's the point, I think. Yeah. So, no, that right. is exactly the point. And that's really what sound money is about is when the, when the, pardon me, when the shit hits the fan, it's the thing you don't worry about. You worry about everything else because you know that, oh, no matter how bad it gets, this is the thing that will survive. And that's really, you know, that's why the, the, uh, the drive, the need, the desire, the longing, the romanticism over the gold standard is because that, that sounds like a really good world. Now it's obviously much more, it's much messier in practice and it's not as perfect and ideal as maybe we want to make it out to be, but those are definitely the characteristics that we want to shoot for thinking about the monetary system going forward from what we have today. You know, you can hardly do worse than a sound money system that does nothing during crisis. The article we're going to be discussing was posted on the 9th of August the 14th anniversary of the malfunction of our global monetary order. And you, you point that out in your title. You call it the two big anniversaries of August, the lost decade plus of the fiat half century. Now, Jeff, the blog post starts out kind of rough. I'm going to read this. 
as my esteemed podcast co-host Emil Kalinowski. All right, so not a great kind of, mm, I don't know, but it gets better from their audience. Well, and, I, did, I, I think I said it was esteemed, S-E-S-T-E-A-M-E-D. <laughs> so I just, you know, you went, to the, went through a steam bath or something. The humidity here in the Cayman yeah. Islands, Jeff. Woo! But I don't have to do dry cleaning. I just walk outside. So here it is, Jeff. If the Federal Reserve was about to become the most powerful force in the economic and financial universe, its officials must have had quite a lot to say about the final breakdown of gold exchange. FOMC meeting July 27th. Yeah, they didn't talk about it. <laughs> it never came up. <laughs> it's like say 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 that say, again. I don't I don't understand. Yeah, the the meeting before August 15th was the end of July, and this is true at the end of June as well and as well as all the other meetings in 1971. You would think that with everything going on with this major break that you know, behind the scenes, the Fed must have been really busy to get ready for this new brand brand new world order that was going to be unleashed upon them. I mean, and yet the, the, they were completely unaware, didn't talk about it. It was just business as usual at the Federal Reserve all throughout 1971 as things were falling apart pretty much everywhere. And really, the Nixon, the Nixon administration, the Treasury Department officials at the time didn't even really involve anybody at the Fed in their negotiations and discussions and putting together what, what became Nixon's plan. And really... Beyond that, you know, closing the gold window wasn't even what is it even at the top of the president's list? It was mostly about wage and price controls and macroeconomic factors. And oh, by the way, maybe we should do something about the, you know, the last vestiges of the gold system. And, but yeah, I mean, the, the point is that what we've been told since 1971 is, OK, the Federal Reserve was finally free to be itself and to print money as it saw fit. That, you know, becoming the center, as you said, I mean, becoming the center of the monetary universe in August 1971, that certainly was not their understanding. In fact, they weren't even informed. July 27th, 1971, two weeks prior, memorandum of discussion. It was 86 pages of literature that you read, Jeff. Poetry. Gold was mentioned all of how many times? Twice. Right. And it wasn't and, even about Bretton Woods. It was about, hey, what was the gold price in London? Which is, I mean, they should never have been talking about the gold price in London anyway, but that's really all they referred to is, you know, how bad is the situation today? June, <laughs> that's really all. June 29th, 1971, one month earlier, how many times did they mention gold, the yellow metal, or uh, what was what was uh, Keynes? Uh, barbaric relic. Yeah, barbaric relic. How many times did barbaric relic get mentioned in that? Well, maybe privately they talked about it a lot, but it didn't hit the it didn't hit the uh, actual official trade. Well, it's not really a transcript, but it didn't hit the, the memorandum of discussion summary. They talked Twice. about gold with it just two more times, right? Yes. That was, and again, it was the same things. It was what is the price of gold doing in London this month? And it's uh, nobody was saying, you know. The system's falling apart. It's going to be changed. We need to get ready. Bretton Woods, blah, blah, blah. None of that. It was just business as usual at the Fed. All right. So they were surprised, Jeff. That's why it's called the Nixon shock. Nobody saw it coming except lots of people, except for the Fed. I think that's kind of, yeah, that's, I guess I'm that's, damning that's them. Point but here, right? I mean, we have this view of the Federal Reserve that's taken from Alan Greenspan's time there, which this is a 
you know, the ideal technocratic institution. They're full of competent, the best and brightest Ivy League scholars who who know their stuff and they can do whatever they say they can do. That was never the case. The Federal Reserve was a joke through most of its most of its history because it was so utterly incompetent. It was so bad at what it did. The Fed was usually an afterthought. I mean, that was obviously true in the reforms of the 1930s after the Great Depression, when everybody realized we don't really know what caused the Great Depression, but we knew you guys didn't prevent it, which is what your mandate was. So we're going to reform the Fed as an afterthought. I mean, even the 1950s and the 1960s, which is supposed to have been an ideal, uh, almost a golden age period in economic history, the Federal Reserve was subservient to the Treasury Department, despite their, their claims of independence in 1951. You know, the, the Treasury was the was the major driving force in monetary policy as well as fiscal policy. The Fed was essentially subservient to the Treasury, and that was true into the 1970s. This idea that the central banks are this major massive force is a modern fiction. It's an invention that came about during the 80s and 90s to help sell the public on expectations policy. And if once you realize that and orient your worldview to that fact, you start to look at things very differently, including what was really what was the significance of august 15 1971 well for the federal reserve it was an it was a massive shock but for the system itself not really so much because it was sort of like well we we kind of heading in that direction anyway so this is kind of just somebody turning the lights out after everything was over well we all make mistakes jeff so they weren't on the ball okay some of us make mistakes for decades you know me for example didn't 60s were like that for me. And okay, the Federal Reserve was out to lunch for a while, but August 24th, now it gets serious, okay? They meet again, August 24th. At the start of the meeting, Burns, you can tell everyone who Burns is, immediately asked that only the executive members and whatever few staff directly related to the discussion remain. Holy S. Now it's serious. Now they're going to talk about it. So once he cleared out the room and they were going to have an honest to goodness, apolitical discussion, what did, what did they talk about? The federal government deficit. <laughs> Arthur Burns and, you know, I mean, at the time he said, let's, let's leave the executive staff and anybody who's relevant to the discussion because some of the, some of the details were, were, were not, not, not supposed to be widely disseminated at the time. But mostly what they were talking about, because remember, this is the monetary realm and a, a lot of the belief about what was going or what was creating this inflationary uh, great inflation it wasn't called the great inflation yet. But what was creating or responsible for that inflationary wave was the federal government's deficits. That was that was the idea from very the very beginning that, you know, through combination of, of uh, spending on the great society as well as the Vietnam War. The government needed to get his house in order, and that's the reason why they had this inflationary problem looming. And so, that's what they wanted to talk about. What was the, what was the what was the fiscal part of Nixon? The Nixon shock of August 15. You know, because his his plan that he released uh, that he told the public and got on TV and said to the to 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 the public on August 15th wasn't just about Bretton Woods and gold. It was about a whole bunch of other things like wages and price controls. You know, wages and price boards, those things like what was the federal government spending? What's, what was its projected deficits going to be for 1971 and 1972? Everyone was much more concerned about what the federal government and Treasury were doing than what the Federal Reserve was doing. And that included the Federal Reserve. They spent a lot of time talking about 
What was Congress next budget going to look like? Was it a real budget? Were they committing to actual spending cuts? Were they committing to taxes? I mean, all this other discussion that had very little to do with the actual monetary system itself. You know, it's a very delightful story as to who headed up that price control board. Did you know that it was Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld yeah, who were number one and number two deciding what sort of prices can be charged? And Jeff, I don't think people appreciate how bizarre and in-depth and involved the heavy hand of the administrative state was. I, I know of one example. I believe it was uh, the University of Alabama. Which one's the, the leader of the football? I always mix them up. Alabama or University of Alabama. It's so embarrassing. I mixed this up. I don't remember. Okay, maybe it was uh, some college in the SEC who asked if they could increase their season ticket prices. They went Had to they Dick get permission Cheney. From, from yes, Dick Cheney. yeah. Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld. Can we increase season ticket prices for? I think it was maybe the South Carolina Gamecocks, or maybe it was Alabama. I don't know. And and the answer was no, no, you can't. It's amazing. Whenever I write about it, I always say that you know, in in August of 1970, I forget Bret Woods. That wasn't that wasn't the main part. It was. You know, Mao Zedong was was jealous of what was going on in the United States because that's really how it was. And I don't th- I, th- I think it, it's 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 so foreign and so far back in history, 50 years now that it's, it's, it's passed from living memory. But it really sounds like it's something out of a science fiction novel, except for you know, in our covid era today. It's actually it seems like everything's coming full circle again, at least moving in that direction. But really, the government took a very heavy hand in 1971 to try to get a hold of inflation. And spoiler alert for those people out there who think that this is a good idea or, or what uh, that there's there's some value in this very heavy heavy-handed top-down approach. The Great Inflation would continue for more than another decade, so it really didn't last very long. These you know wages and price controls were gone within a year or a little over a year. It didn't really work out so well because that wasn't really the problem, which is again pretty much par for the course when you're talking about the government's in- interventions because. Usually they start out with the wrong idea and then come up with the wrong solutions that lead into the lead to nowhere but the wrong direction. So that's what Arthur Burns was focusing on when he asked everyone except for the executives to leave. But finally, as you say, yeah, the first thing, hey, let's start our meeting by wonder. Let's let's figure out whether or not the federal government can fix this mess because it's not our job. <laughs> that's really essentially what they were saying. And then, but finally, he said his piece. And he sat down and he let everyone else chime in. And this is when the discussion turned to gold. True? Yes. What did they say then? Well, now you have some basic just, you know, sort of technical issues. There's logistical issues with, you know, we had kind of settled into this routine where we work with other central banks and governments around the world to try to jerry-rig the, the what was left of the Bretton Woods system to just kind of hold on to the idea that it was still somewhat functional, even though we know that it wasn't, and a lot of people around the world already knew that it wasn't. At the Federal Reserve, they thought, it seems to be working. Inflation's Treasury's problem, not ours. Um, we're still kind of managing. Yes, there's a two-tier price structure for gold, and that's that's really very contrary, completely outside the lines of Bretton Woods anyway, but you know, we're still calling it Bretton Woods. It's still somewhat functional. We're cooperating, we're doing some things. As far as the Fed was concerned, why change anything? 
Can I read a quote here from uh, Mr. Coombs? Not a quote, I suppose, but just a description of what he was saying. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. In comments supplementing the written reports, Mr. Coombs observed that the decision to close the gold window had demolished with one stroke the Bretton Woods exchange rate system. But no, not really, right? It was just yeah, the from, signing from their of the yeah, death from, certificate. Yeah, that, that was guy. from the Fed's perspective. It was like, what are you doing? Everything we're, we're doing, we're, you know, we're behaving normally. We've got everything, you know, we seem to be uh, functioning somewhat well. And there's no reason to take what they thought was a drastic step because, you know, as far as the Federal Reserve was concerned, Everything else that was going wrong at the time was somebody else's problem. So there was no reason to close the gold window. There was no reason to go that far because the Fed was Fed would kind of like the situation that they were in, which was they were sort of squirreled away, way in the corner, in the back. Nobody really paid much attention to them. And they just kind of went about their daily business trying to swap dollars from with Switzerland and Italy and everybody else every now and again. Foreign governments and central banks were immediately confronted with the problem of how to operate their exchange markets without a convertible dollar or any alternative intervention currency. They had no choice but to close their exchange markets in the hope of reaching quick agreement in the common market and closely associated countries on a coordinated exchange market policy. As you say, no cooperation was found. It, and that was the early 70s. And it, it echoes that late 70s, 1979 piece from the New York Fed, where they wrote about the euro dollar system and how there is no lender of last resort for the euro dollar system and how they complained and warned and pleaded that there's unlikely to be any inter international cooperation in the future and they were right and really that that's kind of what gold was gold wasn't really the central bank because it was a fixed fixed money supply but at least it was something behind all the dollars right i mean that's really what they were talking about these foreign officials and foreign exchange officials was that look you know, if things get out of control, we at least have something in the system that we can go back to and go back on and convert into to make sure that the system works as the way, you know, there's some way in which we can depend upon, you know, how everything is supposed to fit together. And you take that kind of away, which is what had been happening since, you know, November 1961, the London Gold Pool. And even before then, you know, a lot of these places had already started to work around the Bretton Woods system. But they still had, you know, sort of that kind of just clinging to the to that last little bit of it because, you know, human beings are emotional and irrational, everything else. And that includes officials and central bankers. But by and large, you know, functionally, the, the global exchange system had already changed. And it was really about taking away that last crutch, that last little stool, peg in the stool and what would happen following that. One of my favorite parts of all the research you do is finding those little nuggets where central bankers in memorandums of discussion, in speeches, are admitting and throwing up their hands and warning and pleading for help because this monetary system is out of control. And I think the most interesting little nugget that you discovered by reading those transcripts from 1971 was what came from the june no july transcript here we go i'm going to read it out loud and then you tell us kind of what the important punchline of this is quote 
Of the two items, the chairman continued, one involved a possible change in the form of the committee's directive to the desk. Which desk? You'll tell us. A number of members were dissatisfied with the present procedure of placing main emphasis on rates of growth of the monetary aggregates or on levels of the federal funds rate. And some had come to believe that the directive should emphasize member bank reserves, the one magnitude which the desk could control more or less directly. Yeah, there's a lot in that one little quote that uh, ties together not just August of 71, but August of 2007 and everything thereafter with QE and bank reserve. Essentially, when we got into the actual monetary business, remember, this was the, the July meeting, right? This was before August. So for the Fed, it was business in, as usual at that point. And business as usual at the Fed before August 1971 was there's something wrong with the monetary system. We don't really know what it is, but we've been kind of pegging our monetary policy based on monetary growth is what central banks are supposed to do, right? I mean, that's Walter Badgett going back to the 19th century, standard monetary practice. And what they kept hearing from the banking system coming back to them is, look, this isn't working, this isn't working. And then looking at inflation, well, that's we hope it's Treasury's fault, but you know, there's maybe it's not. We don't really know because targeting monetary aggregates we don't really have as much control over them and oh by the way we're also starting to find out that these monetary aggregates seem to be missing a whole bunch of other stuff too so there's a lot of stuff going on in the monetary details that don't seem to be lining up with the certainly monetary policy but also big you know smart capitally economic understanding as well and what arthur burns was saying is maybe we should just do what we can do and which is target the level of bank reserves because the level of bank reserves are the one thing that we actually control. And that's just such a stupid statement because you're thinking we can control bank reserves, but yet there's all this other monetary stuff out there that we can't control. And maybe that's kind of important about inflationary conditions or deflationary conditions as the case and circumstances may be. It's a shame they don't have any economists on staff that could look into this matter. Jeff, that's it from me for this part. Are you ready to move on to part two? Yeah, I just, I think the, the, the last little bit here is that, you know, August 15th in 1971 is one of those things that's misunderstood for a lot of different reasons. And it's given a level of importance and significance. I don't think that's appropriate because in, in going back and reviewing, I mean, look, you know, the idea was that we went off the gold standard and that unleashed a fiat system. That wasn't true. We had been under a fiat system for a very long time before then, and an international system that had almost depended almost nothing upon gold to begin with. It was a euro dollar standard that developed long before then, which explains why nobody bothered to tell the Fed that they were going to actually do this because it wasn't really necessary to tell the Fed. Everything else was sort of kind of taking care of itself. In part two, we're going to discuss the most recent Treasury International Capital Report, and we're going to talk about three important developments. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to talk about the Treasury International Capital Development, blah, 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 blah. We're going to talk about the Treasury International Capital Report, and we're going to talk about three things. I'm talking so fast because just before we went on the air, Jeff was asking, do you think we're going to have time for all three? We've got to make time, folks. Very important things happen. And that's why I'm going to be talking really, really fast in this episode. Jeff, 
August 19th, 2021, you posted it at Alhambra Investment Partners blog post. You're the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Here's the title. A tick trio of more serious deflation potential. Assets rebound. Banks can't borrow T-bills from foreigners. And the China cringe, which goes along. We're going to talk about three things, George Gammon. One, the May 2021 big dollar warning. We're going to get an update on that. Two, China. Three, U.S. banks. Let's go. You're going to talk fast. I'm going to talk slow because we b- people need to know that we bet before we started. And I bet we would never get all these things in and that we should only focus on one or two. So That's I'm going to win the bet by talking much more slowly. <laughs> um, episode 93B, ladies and gentlemen, is when we talked about the big warning we saw in May, which was foreigners selling what? What were they selling, Jeff? Primarily treasuries, but a little bit of everything. But, uh, you know, the, the warning was that there was an a, a overall net negative, more selling than buying, uh, regardless of what the asset classes were. Because that's, that's, well, it used to be very infrequent and it's become more common nowadays and more common in the post-2008 era during these periods that we identify with global dollar shortage situation. So to find a negative number in the overall net was a significant enough of uh, a finding that led us to say, you know, hey, something's not right here for the month of May, which, I mean, that's pretty much consistent with what we already know. Good news, uh, Jeff. The crisis is canceled. Uh, In June, foreigners were once again buying, and uh, we can now move on to part two, right? Well, I mean, yeah, it's a good sign. You don't want to see two negative months in a row, but it's not unusual to see a bounce back one month to the next. So, you know, think about uh, 2013 or 2015, any number of the other times where we saw big minuses in the net uh, one month, and then the next month you'd see a bounce back. And it's, it's not really that unusual at all. In fact, it's, it's almost a part of the pattern. So it's really, hey, we saw the negative. Now we're on alert. Let's, let's, let's look at other things and see what's, see what's going on across the entire system and not just using the, the headline tick numbers. You called it an omen, a bad omen, that it's just that we had even one negative. And I asked David Parkins to draw up some omens of bad luck. Did you like this one, Jeff? Yeah, that was good. I mean, they're all good from David. I mean, it doesn't, his worst, uh, his worst thumbnail sketch is probably better than 99% of everybody else's. He's amazing. I love the look we've got here on Jason with the calendar. Okay, so it was a bad I omen. I think that maybe that's, uh, maybe that's um, Arthur Burns behind the mask. <laughs> oh, it's just incredible. I love it. I love it. Okay, so now we're moving on to part two. And so we just went from bad omens, so it already gives you the creeps. Quote, I'm reading from you. And now something that always makes me just cringe so now we're going to be talking about china i'm going to pull up a graph tell us jeff yeah it's the idea is that cny the chinese yuan's exchange rate against the u.s dollar um you see it go sideways and that's that's kind of a that's that's something you never want to see because that means manipulation and contrary to mainstream popular belief Manipulation by central banks or other foreign official or any kind of official channels is never a good thing. That's always a response to something that's going on behind the scenes that they conceive that we cannot. So in one way, it's one of those omens or warnings that, 
if you start to see a lack of volatility, especially in China's currency, um, yeah, you start to start to cringe. You start to wonder what's really going on over there. And what's really going on over there, we've been told for the last year and a quarter, year almost year and a half, is that the world is flooded with dollars and those dollars have been flooding into China and it's been wonderful and great and reflationary and even inflationary. Yet we kind of start to see the cracks emerge, including recently going back to June where the Chinese currency has sort of gone flat sideways again. And yeah, the, the, that's, yeah that's, that's where we are now. In the most famous or most infamous example of that was in the early part of 2015, I believe March 2015 through August, where increasingly that range got narrowed down to the point where by June, late June and July 2015, there was basically a, 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 almost an overt uh, currency peg, which some people in the financial media were celebrating as you know the wise Chinese monetary stewards doing what they needed to do, when in fact what they were really doing was becoming more and more desperate as the dollar situation grew further and further against them. And the way that worked out is they were sort of like coiling up with spring and it only took something in relatively innocuous and benign to set it off and it created all sorts of disruptive conditions, which is, you know, I believe it was August 10th or August 11th of 2015. <laughs> and suddenly the Chinese currency opened up, you know, down 2% or whatever it was, which shocked the whole world. And then of course, we had, to, we had to hear weeks upon weeks about, oh, the Chinese are devaluing their currency to, to stimulate their exports and all. It's, you know, so that's another reason why we cringe because not only when you see lack of volatility in the Chinese currency, does that mean intervention? But then we're also gonna have to, we also realize that nobody really understands what that, what that intervention is or why, what its actual purpose is. It's dollar-based, not stimulus. Now, we're going to tie it into the Treasury International Capital Report, but I was showing your graph of the People's Bank of China balance sheet and their foreign exchange asset holdings, which we've talked about in a previous episode. These I've forgotten which one. Camille, these things are supposed to fit together. They're very different. I mean, these are not the same data series at all, but yet when things are working the way they're supposed to work, you know, you, you should be able to see consistency between all of these various data points because they're pointing at the same thing which is the global dollar system. So if we see CNY go up, we think that's reflationary because there's more dollars in the system and more dollars are entering China's hands, then we would expect CNY to go up at the same time. A lot of those dollars end up at the PBOC because of the way the Chinese monetary system is set up and dollarized. So already there's already something missing if you know CNY is going up, but there's not, you know, the PBOC is not reporting the same on its balance sheet in terms of foreign assets rising. And then the other part of that is tick, which is the U.S. side looking looking over there, and we should see the same corroborating thing, which is Chinese, whether it be through Belgium or mainland China holdings, we would expect them to rise as well. We would expect to see the Chinese, as more dollars are out there in the world, they go into China, which reduces, which reduces the U.S. dollar exchange value, CNY rises against the U.S. dollar. It, the, the dollars end up in the PBOC's hands, which then you, a lot of those are are used to purchase U.S. Treasuries as reserve assets. So all these three things we expect to see happen together and really, you know, go back to 2017's globally synchronized growth reflation number three. We got the CNY rising. We got a little bit of, of um, uh, increase in the, in the PBOC's balance sheet, more so in the tick data, but that was only the early part of 2017. It kind of got shut off later. And then, of course, um, now we're seeing this, this all over again. 
the CNY since the last since uh, last uh, summer actually has gone way up. It's gone. It's been very strong. And, and for a while there, up until January of this year, it was. It seemed like it was on a one way ticket to the to the stratosphere. But yet, all that time it was going up. All the time we kept hearing about Jay Powell's flood, digital dollars, the world is awash with liquidity, too much money, bank reserves everywhere. It didn't show up in China in either the PBOC's balance sheet or really in the tick data either. There was a little bit of a bump up late last year, which was consistent with modest, very modest reflation, but nothing of the sort of the magnitude of CNY's rise, nor the rhetoric in the mainstream media. That's right. And we're looking at this graph now and you can see three gaps between the currency, the dotted black line and the cumulative total of the Belgian and Chinese uh, treasury holdings. And we've talked about in a previous episode how we believe that Belgium is not actually the owner of these treasuries, but holding them in custody via Euroclear for the Chinese. That's the scuttlebutt in the in the macroeconomic uh, what? Uh, grapevine, is that right, Jeff? That's the plumbing, yeah. I don't think I mean, there's any, that's not really controversial at it's all. It's not, okay. No. Uh, and so we see these three gaps. We see one in 2015. That resolved itself rapidly. Then we see one in 2017, 2018. That resolved itself over time. Now we see one again. Jeff, what about the notion that the dollars are coming into China, but are not are bypassing uh, safe and the PBOC? I'm going to read a little comment here from uh, Michael Pettis, who lives in China and comments on these things. And you tell me what you think about it. So he says it's on Twitter, by the way, August 9th. He posted this in honor of our anniversary there of the euro dollar anniversary. According to SAFE, State Administration of Foreign Exchange, China's reserves rose to 3.236 trillion at the end of last month, the highest level since December 2015. This, however, is a little deceptive. Since 2017, the PBOC hasn't directly intervened in the currency, but large Chinese banks have to the tune of 1 trillion and presumably those dollars, euros, etc., are also available for use by the PBOC. Counting the two together, China has access to 4.2 trillion, which is more than its previous peak in 2014, or just under 4 trillion. What do you think about that idea? That, yeah, that's, that's, that's some people have theorized that Chinese banks are either holding them off the books or offshore, or in some, in some way, uh, completely invisible to usual usual uh, channels of data data reporting and that kind of a thing and it's it, you know it's one of those things where you have to shake your head because it's it's how do you falsify that that um, how do you falsify the theory because you're basically saying they, they must be there because we know they're there and we've kind of estimated what must be there because we we think that's what what's there I don't you know in order for that to happen, in order for Chinese to hold dollars offshore, they would have to show up somewhere. They don't just they don't just disappear into the ether like they do when the dollar system is contracting. And so we would expect those dollars to show up on tick or something, something outside of China that would say, yes, Chinese ho Chinese holdings of U.S. dollar assets have increased materially during this period. Even if it's not PBOC, even if it's not safe, there's definitely some kind of origin that, uh, involved with China. So I'm not, I don't really believe in the idea that the Chinese banks are hold, hoarding or holding uh, these 
these dollar inflows off the ba- off the books because first of all why would they want to and second of all where are they it still leaves us still leaves the question unanswered if the world is awash in dollars where are they they have to show up somewhere and they simply are not and that's really the the issue here the fact that we can't seem to find them which leads us in the direction and, and toward the conclusion of they aren't there again you know if you're the Chinese and you want to you want to say things are really good over here in China, why would you not want to say, look at all the dollars we've gotten. Look at how the world is going back to normal. Why would you want to hide that? That makes no sense to me whatsoever, except by, well, we don't know what else to say. He adds, uh, he mentions the CIC, which is their sovereign wealth and China Investment Corporation. He says they have at least another $1.1 trillion in foreign exchange reserves there. I don't know where if that's showing up on the books or not. Again, but- it should show up somewhere outside of China because, yeah, you can get away with a lot of things in China, especially when, you know, these the big Chinese banks are not really private banks. They're essentially state-owned entities, so they're, they're one arm of the government. And they do take direct orders from the PBOC and other, you know, not just the PBOC, but there are other uh, bureaucratic agencies in control. But... When we're talking about dollar system and global flows, it, it's you know it may be a dark black hole inside of China what goes on inside, but there's still there's still somewhat of a, tra- a trail a trail to follow outside, and tick data has been a reliable one. Part three now the third thing that you observed at least one of the top three things at the beginning of your article you said there's more but we're just going to cover three. Is now we're going to talk about treasury bills. And you remind us in your article all about repo being the lender of last result, how there's collateral shortages, collateral multipliers, the treasury is refunding treasury bills, and then you dive into the graphs. Is there, do you want to give us a refresher on the importance of treasury bills, or do you think we've covered it previously with um previous <laughs> I think episodes people might be a little bored with treasury bills yeah i think we've hit treasury bills enough all right so let's turn to u.s banks borrowing collateral in a repo arrangement what does this graph mean jeff it means that that collateral is coming from outside the united states it's being reported as in possession of u.s banks for who knows, you know, we don't know exactly what specific transactions are involved, except that we do know that they're under resale agreements or repurchase agreements. So some form of repo where collateral is coming into the United States, um, borrowed by U.S. banks from foreign entities, not just foreign banks, but also foreign non-banks and FOIs, which are foreign central banks and foreign governments. And already, I th- you know, people, what do you mean? U.S. banks are borrowing treasury bills from foreign governments? Yeah, that's kind of what we're saying here. They're not just buying, they're not just borrowing treasury bills. They're buying, borrowing all sorts of short-term securities, which is what TIC keeps, keeps uh, track of. And they're also borrowing long-term securities, which we don't have any real idea uh, of that at all. Short-term securities there. Wait, and so, okay, blah. Do we want to talk about this graph? No, we've already talked about it. That's you- part of yes, that's part of it, which is that you know, um, if you go above one, go up, go up one more. There you go. So what we're seeing here in this is a big spike in repo collateral mm-hmm. being borrowed from 
U.S. banks borrowing collateral from outside the United States, both of those two, you know, banks, the banking system, the non-banking system, as well as foreign official institutions, which is consistent, if you see throughout the chart, with sort of reflationary period. So U.S. banks get to really risk taking and they're getting their collateral from outside. the. They're getting their collateral in some part from outside the United States, borrowing all sorts of securities. So over the last, you know, the last couple months of 2020, first couple months of 2021, that sort of makes sense, right? Because we saw a reflationary, a reflationary wave kind of sleep sweep up over most of the global financial system. So you would expect to find something similar in repo. So there's a, there's some, there's an indication here of a large increase in ex, in repo expansion. Maybe that's the collateral multiplier, securities being repledged and reused, and ending up in U.S. bank hands. But you're worried because you think that it might be junk bonds and because there's yeah, so if you a go down short. This next set of charts, which is a different part of the tick data, so it's not the same stuff, we're looking at what's reported as being held or what's, what's reported as being borrowed overall in terms of what asset classes. Not necessarily in repo, but just overall. And as you would expect, I mean, we know that the Treasury Department is refunding bills, which means they're they're supplying much they're supplying fewer bills because they're getting ready for the debt ceiling constraint, and um, they didn't uh, they they had issued a whole ton of bills last year, so supply of bills is coming down, and as we see in the tick data, quite quite naturally, that U.S. banks are borrowing fewer bills overall in terms of collateral coming into the United States into U.S. bank hands. So if you put that idea together with what we just said on the other side, which was U.S. banks borrowing more collateral in repo overall, but it can't be more in treasury bills, we're kind of left with a bit of a conundrum, to borrow a term. And the collateral conundrum isn't really a collateral conundrum. It's They're not borrowing as many treasury bills, so it's not, it's not like they're getting their hands on treasury bills backing all this repo activity. What must it be then? Well, I don't know. I can guess. I think we can all reasonably guess what it is, especially then we think about somewhat of the, uh, you know, uh, going back to late 2020, November, December 2020, vaccines, stimulus, all that kind of euphoria. Would it really be uh, controversial or unreasonable to think that some of the collateral that was coming back and being borrowed and being reused and repledged was of the lower quality variety? I think that's probably a pretty good guess. And why that's important is that we put these kinds of things together. We've got U.S. banks borrowing more in repo, which kind of tells us maybe something about the overall general tenor, you know, the the overall general feelings in the uh, global monetary system. Reflation, a little more risk taking, maybe a little more risk taking than anybody appreciated thinking that, oh, we we fixed COVID, the pandemic's over, risks are, you know, there's no more risks anymore, so we can go back to the way it was maybe in 2017, which as we know, that kind of risk-taking, allowing that amount of junk collateral to infect the collateral system led, led inexorably toward the next crisis, which was a collateral bottleneck as all of that junk started to get thrown out of the system and leading to the, you know, scramble for the good stuff, of which there's less of that now. So it's the potential if that junk did infect the system during that reflationary wave late last year, early this year, then as it gets sort of questionable and then repudiated, what happens then? Well, we know the answer. It's nothing good.
it gets repudiated when there's a downturn, when reflation pauses and starts heading the wrong way. You Which know, we've seen over and over and over. I mean, 2018, 2014, 2015. I mean, this cycle continues to repeat. And it's, I, it's, it's happening right now, I yeah, would say. We're, we're turning. I think I've that's, heard. That's kind of the point here. So now we're, yeah. what we're really doing is we're looking back at tick to tell us, you know, to give us more evidence of what we already think is happening. I mean, look, in real time, we have bond yields falling and falling much more quickly over the last couple of months. And here we have the tick data giving us, you know, a lot of the reasons or the lot of a lot of the backing behind why that might be, because if that's true, if our interpretation of that is true, and look, we're speculating here. Let's be honest. We don't have a complete series of data. We don't have we don't have specific granular details that we can go to and say this bank did this with that bank and that other bank, and we know the security that moving around. We don't. <laughs> we're putting a lot of different pieces together. We think that you know, having done this for many many years. And, you know, being largely correct about what has been going on, it isn't really too much of an intuitive leap to think that's what has happened. And that would help us explain why this deflationary potential that seems to have come up over the last few months, not necessarily based on COVID, but based on a hell of a lot of other things going back to last year, um, growth scare, fragility in the the collateral system of being amplified by what treasury is doing being further harmed by what you know qe buying and stripping uh, longer bonds out of the system and so any number of things that would give us more detail and more substance behind deflationary potential which seems to have been much much more um much much more agreed upon and certain over the last few months yeah having being Speaking so fast, I can't get my thoughts in order, but having read you for years now, I guess it's almost approaching a decade, uh, I can tell the audience that it's true, that when you do speculate, it's well-founded and often very correct. In fact, I don't remember a time when you speculated and didn't come to pass, so I think you're, you're right on here. Jeff, my last thought here is that when, I asked, when we first discussed this, this issue of rehypothecation, repledging and reusing, uh, I asked David to illustrate Dolly the sheep when they cloned it, right? Scientists yeah. clone and duplicate. What do bankers do? They set up some mirrors and they say, here you go, you can buy this sheep in the mirror it's just the same sheep but you know what jeff if i having listened to you now and read your article uh, i think if i asked david to do this again what i would show is that in the reflections it's some sort of scraggly sheep right it's the junk <laughs> bond version it's like the black a, sheep yes yes it's not even the same sheep now we're going down in quality all right well, that's, you know, yes, again, that's we're speculating, but we think it's a reasonable, reasonable hypothesis and we'll see how it shakes out. But I think one of the re one of the important reasons why there's been so much demand for T-bills, especially since mid-March, is that the idea that, oh, if we really did allow junk to infect the system again, going too far in our in our euphoria over vaccines and stimulus and everything else late last year, we know how this ends. It ends with everybody scrambling for treasury bills and the best quality collateral. So maybe I better get some, get my hands on some and even hoard some ahead of time because 
as the as the world starts to reject the idea that we're in a, some robust recovery period and we start to think about downside risks emerging again across the entire global economy, we get, we get out of this inflation hysteria and start to look at things more rationally, more realistically, then it makes sense. All of this stuff really does start to make deflationary potential, fragility, and everything else. I think we're there, Jeff. Uh, people that have been correctly identifying inflections in the economy for years now are in agreement. I'm thinking of several of them in my mind right now. They're in agreement. They're seeing things turn right now, and they predicted that they would turn at the beginning of the year, and they are turning. So we'll yeah. see what the rest of the year brings. Let's. What do the people think, though? That's the question. And yes, I'm going to include German financiers under that broad category of people. We're going to talk about that in part three. We're going to go over some surveys from Germany, the United States, which had some volatile, big changes. And then as well from the British and Japanese, who are very calm people. They didn't have very big changes, but they've got some important notes that we should go over as well. That's in part three. The people, the people, what do they think? Well, they're asked every month in surveys around the world, what are your expectations of the future? Income, job security, etc., consumption. We're going to go over two big reports that came out very recently, as well as a couple of just, we're going to check in on the British and the Japanese. But the, the meat of our episode here will be the Germans and the Americans. Jeff, I leave it up to you. Where do you want to turn to first, Germany or America? Because you Shouldn't post we always start in the zoo. Let's do it. Yes, we always should start with the zoo. I think that's where we begin. It's it's very appropriate. Z E W, ladies and gentlemen, but also Z O O. Germans got global is the title of your blog post at Alhambra Investments. Jeff Snyder, head of global research at Alhambra Invested Investments, and it was posted on the creepy, crawly August, Friday the 13th. And the zoo survey, we've talked about it before, important and very interesting because they have three big surveys. One is of their business leaders. Another one is of their consumers. And then this one, I'm not aware of any other country doing a survey of just financiers and the the people in the financial departments of corporations. So tell us a little bit, you know, set the scene about the Zoo German survey. Well, the Germans have been extremely optimistic up until recently. Um, the, as you see, looking through the history, the German financiers who are all mostly trained economists anyway, they tend to get very optimistic and happy during periods when the ECB is doing a lot. There's a really good correlation. If you see the zoo survey go up, the, at least the headline sentiment survey go up, you can usually dependably uh, th realize that the ECB has probably done something that that uh, they would agree is accommodative and helpful and loose and all the, the other terms you hear thrown around with monetary policies. And of course, since the ECB last since last year has been doing an extraordinary amount of quote unquote accommodation and whatnot. The zoo survey had, up until earlier this year, gotten to the highest it had been in 20 years, which is one of those things where you stop and think of, well, yeah, I understand the uh, the economy was bad and it's getting better, but does it really correlate with the early 2000s or the 1990s? Um, you know, maybe that's just it's a little bit too optimistic. 
Right. So that's where we started from. That was a couple months ago. Yes, exactly. And then we've started to deteriorate a little bit two months ago, a little yeah, bit going more. going back to May, right? We keep yep. seeing May show up in a lot of things. There was a real stumble in May. And then I, it was a big stumble, not in the survey though, but like economically speaking. Right. And then, so the survey, if I'm going off memory, May, a little bit of a downturn, a nice acceleration in June, and then July, or am I off by, yeah, yeah, June, July, the latest one. What is the latest one? What does that one, one represent? For August. And for so August. The, right, and I think the three-month change, which was the chart you were just showing, is among the steepest in recent memory, which is one of those things that gets your attention because you think, okay, what's going on that the Germans who are still in the midst of reopening, still trying to get themselves back out and things still moving positively, all of a sudden sentiment collapsed at a rate that, uh, yeah, it was a three-month that indicator that we haven't seen since last June, which was the downturn. It was about the same as we saw in August of 2019, just before Germany entered a recession. I, th I, th I did a graph too, Jeff. I'm going to show it. Here we go. Where Your is graphs it? are always better anyway. So Why? No. Okay, here's my graph. Can we see it? Here we go. Steve Van Meter, he's so good. Steven Van Meter, he's so good at showing graphs. It's such, he's such a professional flipping, flopping back between views of himself and then the graphs. I got to learn from him. Okay, the graph I'm showing, it's the, the line we want to look at is the dotted line. And Jeff, just August alone, August alone, it was in the bottom two and a half percent of all results, meaning the optimism change over the last since 1991 germans they had a a, a less pessimistic change 97 and a half percent of the time over the last 30 years that's how bad august was terrible yeah, drop you know there's two parts to that it's one it's okay that's not good so what maybe that maybe that's signaling something changing in the real economy but i th i've seen already some people argue some economists some in the media argue well that's because optimism was so unbelievably sky high it was inevitable that it would come down a little bit and therefore let's, let's not make too much out of this i guess so i guess so but... i mean that's entirely possible but again we don't look at these things in isolation mm -hmm. it's not like we say oh we're just going to focus on the zoo and uh, we're not going to look at anything else anywhere around the world or even anything else in Germany. And industrial production. Right. Industrial production, which is a big one that has been going backwards in Germany since late last year, which is not just Germany, though. That, that correlates strongly with what we've seen in China's growth. And again, as you're showing on the chart here, German industrial production has been behaving differently than it has, industrial production has across the rest of Europe. And the reason that would be is, can't be COVID, because everybody in Europe has the same COVID outlook and the same COVID conditions. But Germany, especially in industry, has quite a bit of a connection, um, especially at the margins with the Chinese economy. And then that's what you show in German factory orders, which have dropped precipitously from the non-Eurozone. Right. So, yes, we, you know, I believe Germany. we talked about this in a prior episode yes. where two months ago, again in May, uh, uh, factory orders in Germany taken from outside the Eurozone just absolutely collapsed. I think it was a 9% drop in a single month. 
And that did not rebound in the, in the following months. I believe the latest month, the latest data is for the month of June. They actually shrank a little bit more. So the rest of the world, as far as German industry, German factories are going, something's going on where there's, there's quite a bit of a struggle out there that's hitting, that's starting to register in obviously German sentiment as well as German capacity. Jeff, these are lagging indicators. They're retrospective. They are reported with a one month or two month, whatever lag. You know what's reported every day and what was telling us in May that something was up, German yields on uh, government uh, bonds. So that's the gr other graph that you showed in, in, your, uh, in your blog post here is yeah, and there's We're double not significance, there, right, Emil? We talked about the yeah. The the reason it's doubly significant is that not only have German yields sunk since May, it was the German market that had been uh, uh, almost un, you know uniquely optimistic between February and May. German yields were rising as most of the around the rest uh, most yields around the rest of the global bond market were falling, and it wasn't until May that Germany said, you know what. Some of the local optimism we have, no, that, that seems to be disappearing too. So since May, we've got all of these consistent signals inside of Germany as well as outside of Germany that, that have us starting to question a whole lot more than simply pandemic. Yeah, well, it's just data, Jeff, okay? You know, other signals are more important, like narrative, the business media, financial press, central bank press conferences. Let's go to the United States, posted on the same day, the 13th of August, Friday, an ill omen, an ill wind blew across the world on that day. Jeff, here's the blog post title, the third of the transitory inflation trifecta and today's surprisingly consistent ugly surprise. You talked a little bit, I mean, you talked about inflation here, but do you want to talk about it or do you want to move on to the, no, we, the survey results? Yeah, the, I think the, the inflation we talk, I talked about there that, that I went over was import prices, which are showing the same pattern we've seen in the CPI survey and all the others let, were. Let, it, let me show it really fast because yeah. it's a really good graph. Um, Monthly change. Oh, GD, I, I closed it. Okay, <laughs> you keep talking and I'm going to do Stephen Van Meter magic in the background. Okay. Inflate import prices was another one that signaled that the uh, inflationary environment, and there was a big jump in import prices year over year. The numbers are still pretty, pretty, pretty huge, uh, but the rate of change, rate of monthly change, peaked several months ago, and import prices are starting to decelerate. They're still increasing, but they're starting to decelerate noticeably, which is consistent with a whole bunch of other inflation uh, measures that we've talked about before, including those in Europe that we haven't yet. Month-over-month uh, -month changes in Europe that were actually negative for uh, August. Anyway, so import prices, like producer prices, like CPI services, and all these others, we're starting to see them fade and come off and not accelerate. In fact, decelerate uh, pretty strongly. This graph I'm showing here is the key one. It's the bars that I want to draw everyone's attention to because in a previous episode we showed what were we correlating these bars, these the Uncle Sam helicopter or stimulus payment and the reopening euphoria. What did that correlate with? Uh, the inflation surges, right? And so we're yeah. seeing it again, but now in another form of inflation prices. Okay, so incredible. It's there. And then we're going to turn to the University of Michigan survey, which has been going on since 1950 ish, 1951. And since 1974, they've been doing monthly 
updates. Before it was quarterly. Now they're doing monthly ones. And Jeff, the one that they released right now is preliminary. So maybe it'll change by the end of the it month. It change much, yeah. But the economist who reports on these things, the opening sentence, I didn't write it down, but wow, he said, huge change, huge change. He was shocked. Jeff, tell us what happened. Well, as you saw in the chart that you were just showing, the, the, the dashed line, what that was saying is that, first of all, consumer confidence, at least according to the University of Michigan, the conference board's measure is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. The University of Michigan consumer confidence never really got back to where it was before the 2020 recession. So even at its best a couple months ago, it wasn't as good as it had been. So consumers were still a little bit off. And yes, even the consumer confidence numbers here post post recession, you can sort of see the uh, the imprint of Uncle Sam's helicopters and them as well. When Uncle Sam is throwing out money to throwing cash directly into people's checking accounts, they, they tended to be a little bit more confident than they had been. Of course, that's starting to recede. We're starting to see that that influence fade, not just in inflation numbers, but also spending numbers and now confidence numbers. And then the University of Michigan's confidence number for the month of August, their preliminary, was lower than it had been at the lowest point of the last year's recession, which is that's the real ugly surprise here is that, yeah, we expected consumer confidence to maybe come down a little bit. But to, to plunge like that is another one of those things that we shake our head and say, what is really going on here? And let me pull up a graph because I did one for it. I couldn't resist. Jeff, here it is. Plunge. The August 2021, 2021 preliminary reading was in the bottom 1% of all monthly data since 1978. So earlier I said it was 1974. Forgive me, dear audience, 1978. Monthly data, I don't know how many years that is, 40-some years. This was that's in the bottom 1%. That's a, lot of monthly, that's a lot of monthly data points. I, if I remember correctly, the economist that uh, summarized this said this had only happened once before, six times before. This sort of steep drop. Wow. So we've got Germany and the United States financiers and consumers. Sharp, not a drop, a sharp drop. Jeff, all right. You know, you got to say some of that is definitely due to pandemic fears. People yes. are starting to say they hear Delta all over the T. They hear mask mandates. They hear recommendations. I mean, there's definitely a lot of pandemic disease-related news out there that would cause people to to take a step back. But would it would it cause this much of a, a setback? That's really the, I think it's there's there's two things going on here simultaneously, and we're only talking about the one that we're only talking about the, the COVID part of it. The second part of it is that the economy never really did get itself back up from last year. And it's in much worse shape, especially, especially once you, once you factor in the artificial temporary injections by the government, not the Fed, the Fed and QE, those, those things don't matter. We're talking about the federal government's transfer payments, both the businesses as well as individuals. Take those away the economy does not look nearly as good. And forget about the, the establishment survey payroll reports lately. That's a lot that has a lot more to do with other things, non-economic factors too. But by and large, we see this outside the US more than inside the US because there wasn't as much of a, a government interference. 
which is the economy didn't really rebound that robustly at any point over the last year. And you combine that with you know, more pandemic type fears and it's a recipe for what we're starting to see. Amplify a bad situation that gets made much worse than it really needs to be. I also think that it's used a little bit as a shield and a crutch or an excuse. Like the, trade wars, right? We, I mean, how many times oh, did we hear great trade wars example, in 2018? Great example. Yeah. I mean, yes, to your point, yes, it's certainly not good. It's not helpful. But in the financial press and media that I'm reading, that is the second sentence because of Delta, because of Delta, it's mentioned over and over. And, and, and no, no, I don't think so. And here, you well, know, that's why we look at, you know, we've been talking about this too. Chinese economic data peaked last November. That wasn't Delta bond yields. When did yeah, they turn? February, yes. March, U.S. Yes. Treasury. They got out of reflation in March, mid-March. That wasn't Delta either. That was the fact that the market was picking up on signals that this reflation and this rebound in the economy, the fragility of the financial system, these were not turning out the way that they were supposed to, and that risks were rising ever, even before we got to the renewed Delta pandemic, all this latest COVID stuff. And the COVID stuff just makes it that much worse. And the problem with that is if you think it's all related to Delta, once Delta goes away, you think everything's going to go right back to normal. Hmm. Oh, the inflation's going to pop right back up again and the economy's going to start reigniting itself and the happy days are just delayed by another virus uh, variant. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Right now, usually I laugh, but I feel like crying because it's, it's just the struggle, the repeating the same mistake for years now and just blaming the weather. Remember that, Jeff? It's too <laughs> cold. cold. That's why the economy is <laughs> it's bad. It's too cold. It's too hot. It's There's... raining. It's not raining. It's We don't have enough rain. It's it's anything and everything to avoid saying economic weakness. We're not. I'm not exaggerating, ladies and gentlemen. In 2014 or 15, the weather was blamed for having weakness the when the economy was disintegrating. Yes. And then it was the one in 2015 too. There was another cold weather snap that yep. had. That's Trade why the war. Americans weren't spending. It's, it's really it's it's yeah. It, the the best the best example that we can relate the current period to is 2018 and 2019 when Excellent. every little bit of unexpected economic weakness had to have been trade wars. Now, of course, there was partisan politics behind that too, but by and large, economists, especially central bankers, didn't have any other answers except the answer which they're not allowed to say, which is the Fed is a bunch of, the Fed is essentially a joke and bank reserves are not money and QE is all smoke and mirrors and that maybe we do have a monetary problem as the low bond yields around the world absolutely say that we do. You know, who's not a joke is Lakshman Achuthan, who the very same day that you're posting these on August 13th, he was tweeting out that he had just been on Eric's show, Eric Townsend, Macro Voices. And so he was tweeting out, hey, listen to this. He is one of those people that has consistently been right about the inflections in the economy. I'm thinking specifically of 2018 at the beginning in April, he went on Real Vision and said, it's you know it's turning it's over globally synchronized growth it's over and in his uh in his presentation with eric he he specifically called out the delta issue and he said the downturn because they have he has 
their own economic cycle indicators. He yeah, said you're talking those, about the ECRI. Or that's ECRI. right. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. They're fantastic. You can find them, ladies and gentlemen, at Business Cycle. And he specifically said these began to turn down before the Delta variant became a concern for everyone. So to underline our point as an independent third party, Jeff, let me bring up a couple of calm countries, calm consumers, Japan and Britain. And I'm going to bring them up right here. Can you see this? Oh, geez, going too far. Here we go. Here's Britain. So Britain is, I don't know, you can kind of look at this graph. They're back at their median, basically. And their median, this consumer survey by GFK, which was released today. What is today? The 20th of August or late last night, depending depending on where you're located. Yeah, late last night at 6 p.m. Anyways, it was released, and there it went down a little bit this latest month, okay, for August, a little bit. And basically, it's at its median, and they wrote a lot, and you guys, everyone can read it, and they're saying things are good, it looks nice, but then at the very end, there's this little comment, this little remainder that you can't quite score, and it says, suggesting that consumers could be considering switching into saving rather than spending. <laughs> That's one of, you know, they're asking them lots of questions. What do you think about the economy, your job? Are you spending a lot? And the, the consumers in Britain said, you know what? We're thinking about saving a little bit more going forward. I would suggest to you that's not... Uh, overly bullish for a you know for a consumer economy okay like something maybe something yeah if now, you're an economist or a central banker those are the words you never want to hear yeah i'm all for saving. i mean to to individual savers to individual consumers we would say absolutely that's exactly what you should be doing yes but to, but to an, especially a keynesian economist those the, those words are like you know a, a cross to a vampire so now we go across the ocean across the United States, across the ocean again. Now we're in Japan, and this one's a little earlier. It was at the beginning of August, okay? And it's for July. This is Japan's consumer confidence. At the end of August, they're going to have the data for, the, for, the, for this month. And right now, you know, it's going up, inching up, and it's right now at the bottom 20th percent of all its data history, going back to 1982. So it's not wonderful, right? But at least it's growing. And I've drawn some pretty red arrows for you, Jeff, here. I've labeled them Euro dollar one through four. And then take a look, Jeff. I labeled Euro dollar zero, the Asian financial crisis. It turned there too, perfect peak. But Jeff, I want to draw your attention to the quote from the cabinet office at the very bottom of this graph. And look what it says. He said, you know, things are better. Good, good, good. Everything's up. Meanwhile, willingness to buy durable goods declined. It sounds just like what we heard in Britain. Right. Yeah, not really. You know, maybe I'm not going to spend as much. Well, yeah. And if you're coming off of low confidence to begin with, you have to wonder what is it that's driving that increase in, in, at the end of the day? If it's actual economic circumstances or is it just what they used to call recession fatigue, hmm. which is where we've been pessimistic for so long because we can be or because we've had every good reason to be. And now a few things are turning in the right direction you think about japan um i'm not sure what they would be but you think a few things are going right and then it's okay you get normalized to the awful and be, suddenly less awful becomes sort of good and that's really 
when you look at Japanese economic statistics, including like household spending, that's the low level of confidence definitely correlates to the low level of household spending. So it's really, is, is it Japan coming back and recovering robustly or just not as bad as it was last year? And I think the same would be say could be said of the Britain too, is, is you know in Britain there's been a lot of other things to be positive about, including what they call was it Freedom Day, where the government uh, uh, removed the uh, COVID pandemic restrictions in July, you know moving in that direction and then actually doing it that could be causing consumer sentiment to rise, even though it has less to do with the economic situation, which is what you were pointing at in the quote where people said yes we're happy. But we're not going to spend, so it's not the same thing. But that's one of the things that makes it hard of this in in 2020 and 2021 is that, yeah, we do have a template to sort of follow along and how these uh, reflation and dollar shortage cycles go, how they how they move about through the real economy. But we do have these wrinkles, these 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 definitely uh, idiosyncratic um, modern wrinkles and pandemic pandemic responses. Jeff, that's it for me. Do we have any summary for consumer confidence or anything else you wanted to tell the audience before we head into the weekend? Just to reiterate that, you know, we started in the zoo in Germany, but we're not going to stay in the zoo in Germany. It's it's really more data to pull in with real-time data. As you pointed out, you know, we're looking backward at some things. As we talked about in the previous segment with Tick, you know, we're looking backward even more. But what we're trying to do is put together a cohesive broad-based survey of the general global economy, not just the U.S., but all across the world, because it is a global system, to try to identify real evidence to tell us what's really going on here. Are we tipping over toward another downturn? Is this just sort of a pause in reflation? Delta goes away and we go back in the other direction, go back into reflation again. Is inflation coming? Is inflation real? All of these things. We're, we're putting together a global picture of which way things are going starting with really where we start was with real-time markets and so we're working backwards from what markets are saying to identify data points that either corroborate that view or refute that view and if they refute that view we want to know why that is wonderful jeff thank you very much i hope you have a good rest of the friday and wonderful weekend and i'll talk to you again next week okay emil take care